0: Welcome to Brown Bag Religion, the MF Kasser podcast. Okay, then it's 11.30. Uh, There uh, are a lot of attendees and uh, uh, we'll start. So welcome to this week's MF Kasser lunch talk. And uh, I am very happy to give you Brent Nungri, my dear colleague, uh, who. Uh, successfully uh, got funding uh, for his new project uh, very recently, a few weeks ago, so that is very exciting and uh, all MF colleagues and uh, our colleagues uh, outside uh, look much forward to hear more about it, so I'll just give the word to you, Brent, and as you all know, there will be a Q&A round uh, afterwards. So uh, post your questions in the Q&A or in the chat or, uh, yeah, or raise your hand and I'll moderate the discussion afterwards. So please, Brent.
1: Great, thanks. I'm going to uh, share a screen with you here for a second. Let's see. Great, there we go. So thank you very much for, uh, for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about this um, <clears throat> new research project and uh, grateful to um, Kristen and uh, Unmolfred and kettle and everyone else who um, helped out with this, uh, this application process. It kind of takes a village and um, yeah, MF was a really supportive uh, in, in helping with this process. And so I'm really grateful for that. So I'm just going to talk a little bit today about uh, what this project is and, um, yeah, what I uh, will what be up to for the next few years. So the project is called uh, The Early History of the Codex, A New Methodology and Ethics for Manuscript Studies. And this is something that uh, grows out of earlier work that I did on early Christian manuscripts uh, over the last decade and and more. Um, I was studying the earliest Christian manuscripts, and I came to recognize that there was uh, a problem in our uh, knowledge about this form, the codex, that is the book with pages. Uh, There's a point in which in uh, Roman history, uh, third century, fourth century, of the Common Era when there was a shift from the use of the role of the scroll as the vehicle of literature to the codex. And there's a lot that's been written about that. But it's all been based on uh, a data set, our surviving samples of early codices. That is problematic for a couple of reasons, and I'll talk about those in a minute. But I really think that now is a good time to revisit uh, these early books. Uh, There's been a lot of work, as I said, and one of the kind of benchmark studies is the amazing book by Eric Turner, The Typology of the Early Codex, which is uh, the sort of um, fundamental work that we all use uh, when we're working on the earliest examples of this format. Um, But you'll notice the, uh, the copyright date down there is 1977. So uh, it's a little bit dated, Um, an amazing work, but uh, in need of an update in some ways. So it has been 44 years since this last systematic survey and there is a lot of new evidence that's come to light. Uh, So we have a lot more to, to look at Uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, we have less confidence than Turner did about the dates of these things, the actual particular dates of the surviving samples. And again, I'll talk more about that uh, in a few minutes. And we've also seen in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, especially, a kind of convergence of different disciplines. People who are interested in the history of the book Uh, Papyrologists, that is people who study uh, the materials, particularly that have been found in uh, Egypt in the last century, the very fragmentary materials. Uh, Historians of book bindings uh, have also kind of come together to focus on problems of the development of this technology of the book. Um, One of the most recent and interesting contributions is uh, the book that's illustrated here, uh, Georgios Budalis' The Codex and Crafts in Late Antiquity, which is a really fascinating study from uh, 2018 that looks at how book production uh, can kind of fit into the ancient stream of textile production. And uh, yeah, so there's lots of new angles that people have been exploring. So it's a good time, in some ways, to kind of step back and collect all of this data But there are also reasons for caution. Uh, There's methodological problems in how do we deal with this mass of codicological evidence? And I'll talk about what I mean by codicology in a second. And then there's also ethical problems. Uh, What do we do about material that is illegally owned or was obtained illegally as the result of smuggling and looting? Uh, These are serious problems that uh, need to be addressed. So first, I'm going to talk a little bit about the methodological problems. That is what I mean by codecology. So this is an example of a papyrus codex. Papyrus is a plant material that was used uh, as a writing surface in antiquity. And uh, this is what we would call a bifolium. It consists of two leaves or folios here uh, that were Joined and then folded down the middle, so facing pages. And uh, this is an example that's kept in Geneva. It's uh, it was previously until this was found uh, and published in the 1950s a lost work by the comic poet Menander, uh, the Discalos, um, the the misanthrope or the grouch. And what we're looking at here then is uh, a nice example of a codex that can be a sort of palette for us to look at these different codicological details. So things like the dimensions of a codex, uh, the height and width of the page, the way that the text is laid out on the page, uh, how is it that it fits into uh, the frame of the page? Evidence for binding. So you can see probably here, there's a lighter color in these stains on the, uh, the papyrus and that's evidence of the presence at some time of an animal hide, either parchment or leather, uh, what we call a stay, a kind of um, protective patch to keep the binding threads from pulling through the central fold of the papyrus. So we have evidence for the primary binding that would have gone through the central fold. We can also see evidence for a different type of secondary binding that would have been rather stabbed through the codex from front to back. Uh, We can see evidence of paratext, that is textual features that are something other than the main text of uh, the codex. So we've got things like page numbers at the top of the page when they're preserved uh, things like titles. So here we've switched. Now we're on a different, uh, leaf of this codex, the very end of the discolos. So we have a title here at the end. We sometimes have decorations of different kinds. We have corrections, different ways of, uh, doing corrections here. You've got an example of an interlinear insertion here to put in some letters that were left out during the first copying. Examples of punctuation. Uh, We have different types of punctuation, different um, kind of concentrations of them. Some manuscripts have none at all. Some are highly punctuated. And then we have things like uh, the materials. We can look at the writing surfaces. Uh, As I said, this is papyrus, a plant-based surface from the papyrus reed. We also see um, things copied on parchment. uh, That is animal hide that's been prepared for writing. Uh, We can also look at the material that's used for the inscription, so inks. Uh, There's been a lot of good work done lately on the chemical analysis of ink, and uh, that's a really promising area for uh, further research, I think. And then also the script, uh, the handwriting, and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment, but here we've got a close-up example of uh, a nice, what we call a majuscule hand with some cursive tendencies, so not that kind of super regular um, script that we sometimes associate with uh, the large biblical manuscripts, the biblical majuscules, as we call them. So the handwriting is related to one of the big problems that I want to address, which is the problem of dates. So there are very, very few securely dated samples of early codices. They're usually dated by means of handwriting, what we call paleography. And this is an inexact science, uh, to put it mildly. So this particular codex that we're looking at is dated anywhere from the 3rd century to the late 4th century on the basis of uh, of the handwriting. So what do we do with all this information? what I'm aiming to do in the project is to organize all of these descriptive details into uh, a searchable database, so that you could be able to search by any of these criteria. So, if you wanted to find all the books that are a particular format, a particular height, a particular uh, that use a particular script, that uh, use a particular paratextual feature, that this should ideally be uh, searchable and easily um, obtainable. So that's uh, one thing we want to do. We also want to address the problem of insecure dates by carrying out radiocarbon analysis. Uh, But this raises some legal and ethical issues. So a large but uncertain percentage of uh, our surviving fragments and uh, codices were illegally removed from their source countries. That's just a fact. And the study and publication of these books enhances their value on the antiquities market uh, and stimulates the growth of that market, as uh, studies shown. And this really is a serious problem uh, in source countries like Egypt. Um, There are examples in recent years of the kind of looting that takes place, uh, of guards being killed guarding archaeological sites that are being looted. So it really is uh, a problem that we need to come to terms with. Now there's been some effort to do this kind of thing, uh, starting in 1970 at the international level with uh, the UNESCO convention on uh, means of prohibiting and preventing the illicit import, export, and transfer of ownership of cultural property. And You often see this date, 1970, uh, as a kind of benchmark year for these issues, but it's not quite so simple. Uh, the convention itself went into force for its signatories in 1972, but then different countries have either accepted or ratified this convention at different times. The US did it in 1983, uh, and Norway only in 2007. So. <clears throat> It's not quite so simple as just saying, well, 1970, anything that has a record of existence uh, in a private collection before 1970 is okay. It's a little trickier than that. And one of the problems is also laws in source countries. So we're talking with UNESCO about international uh, rules, which basically call on countries to enforce each other's existing cultural heritage laws. But Egypt, for example, has had a prohibition on antiquities, uh, leaving the country in an unauthorized way since uh, 1951. So what we want to do is study what we can know about the modern history of our fragments, and then give each codex uh, or codex fragments uh, a color. Basically, green will be for those that are known to have been acquired legally from the source country, Blue are those that are known to have been acquired before the 1970 UNESCO convention, but not known to have been legally removed from the source country. Yellow are those that are not known to have been acquired before 1970. And then red are those that we know or we strongly suspect are uh, smuggled from the source country after 1970. So the codex containing the, the famous gospel of Judas would be an example there. and. We want to focus our more in-depth study then specifically on the green category, the things that we know that were acquired legally from the source country. And so radiocarbon dating uh, should be a big part of this project. Um, And there hasn't been a huge amount of this done on papyrus and parchment manuscripts from antiquity because it's a destructive process. You have to burn up uh, the piece of the manuscript in order to obtain the date. But recent developments are really, really promising. Uh, This is an article just from um, December 2020 in the journal Radiocarbon that reports on the successful analysis of a three square millimeter area of medieval parchment. So what are we talking about with three square millimeters? So this is one of our office keys and three square millimeters will fit in the small hole in the office key. Uh, But it's even better than that, because we need not have a perfect square. We could have uh, a thin strip or an irregular shape. Uh, So really now, we've reached a point where uh, we're talking about the destruction of a very, very small part of the manuscript. So when we look at a large format codex here, just to take an example, is Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, You can see that we're not really doing much cosmetic damage here, and if we're able to analyze a sufficient number of samples like this, we can build up a collection of securely dated examples that will help us uh, establish comparative dates for other books. So, just to recap then, uh, a little bit about the goals and then the team. So what we want to do is produce a new account of the development and spread of the codex uh, in a way that is both methodologically and ethically sound. So we want to design an open access database that makes this codecological data and provenance information available uh, freely searchable online. We want to conduct detailed provenance research into the ownership histories of these codices and determine their legal ownership status and then fund radiocarbon analysis on the legally owned samples. So this uh, will be a team that consists of me and uh, a couple of postdocs, one in digital humanities, who is going to be focused on the database and then another hopefully on codecology or uh, materials analysis to help out with the analysis of the actual uh, codex pieces and fragments. So that is the project in a nutshell, Tim. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Brent.